0: Okay, we're going to begin, just because we've got a lot of things to cover, and if we don't begin, we can't end, right? So uh, let's bow for a word of prayer, and we'll go from there, all right? Father, thank you for today and the opportunity we have to look into the Word of God. We realize, Lord, that uh, the Word teaches us everything we need to know, that, Lord, you've given us so much information, not just about you, but about the world and about how we are to live in this world and honor you. At the same time. And our prayer, Father, tonight is that we would understand uh, from your word questions that we might have that would enable us to live for the glory and honor of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that when we do have a question, we know that you have an answer. And while we might not have it readily at our fingertips, we know that if we search the scriptures diligently, we will find the answer to whatever question we might have concerning life and, and godliness. So we thank you, Lord, for the assurance of your word, the word that's true the word that always, always transforms. And for that, we are grateful. God, our time together this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've always thought and wished that I was the kind of guy that, you know, uh, I could stand up here and you could ask me whatever question you wanted to ask me and I could answer it because I was like the Bible answer man. But I'm just not that way. I wish I was. Um, I'm just not. Uh, I'm not a real smart person. I just do a lot of studying and a lot of reading and so uh, you could probably pretty easily stump me with any kind of question you wanted to ask. So uh, my, my kids stump me all the time. My wife stumps me quite regularly by asking me a question, you know, out of the Old Testament or something out of the book of Leviticus or Chronicles or Hosea, and I might not have the answer. I say, honey, I, I don't know, but I'll, I'll find it for you. I can get the answer for you. It's going to take me a while, but I'll get it for you. And uh, so I, I know where to go to get the answer. I just not, might not have it readily at my fingertips. But uh, tonight, uh, what I want to do is try to answer some of the questions that you've asked, mainly because you've asked them and they're questions that you have. And I think that it's important for us to be able to look at the questions that people in the church are asking and be able to answer them. Uh, That's very important. Uh, Sometimes we can uh, answer questions nobody's asking. But if you can answer the questions that people are asking, you can kind of get an idea of what's going on in people's minds. And so we want to be able to do that. And tonight we're going to begin with the questions centered around Wednesday night's topic, the Day of the Lord and the Coming of the King. We'll answer those questions first. And then we'll answer the questions dealing with Sunday mornings and uh, those kinds of issues. And then we'll answer the other questions that you might have or that you've given to me so that we can all be on the same page. Does that make sense? So we'll begin with the questions dealing with uh, Revelation, dealing with Second Thessalonians, dealing with the day of the Lord. So every one of us can uh, come to grips with what it is we need to know concerning those things. And I, I love it when people ask questions about Revelation, about the end times, because they're so much to talk about. Um, and so let, let's begin with a question that I was asked this past week, which says, at the rapture, when Christ comes for his church, it states that the sea will give up the dead and the graves will be opened. And um, oh, oh and the graves will be open. Will the graves of the unbelievers be open at, the t- at that time also? Well, I can answer that question two different ways. First of all, the sea giving up the dead is not about the rapture. It's about the return of the Lord in the book of Revelation and the great white throne judgment. If you've got your Bible, turn there, if you would, and I'll answer that question for you. Uh, Now, it doesn't mean the sea is not going to give up the dead at the translation of the church into glory, because it is. If if you are one of the dead in Christ, whether you're buried at Forest Lawn, Rose Hills, Oakdale, or whether you were burned in a fire and your ashes are spread all over the the ground, or whether you're drowned at sea, on the Titanic. It makes no difference where you are from. Uh, if you were a believer, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain shall be cut up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians four, thirteen to to eighteen. So no matter, you know, how you die, th- that's really irrelevant because God can do anything. So if you decide to to bury a loved one and you decide to cremate that person, because we always have questions about cremation versus burial, which is right, which is wrong, is one better than the other, yada, yada, yada. But if you were to cremate a loved one, does that mean that God can't raise that person's body? No, he will. He can. He can do anything he wants. And so it's gonna be uh, raised from the dead. But particularly in Revelation 20, These words are spoken, which I think are very important to answering the question. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, and whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, remember, when you come to Revelation 20, everything is gone. Heaven and earth have fled away from his presence. Now, if God is omnipresent and heaven and earth flee from his presence, that means what? They're nowhere, they're gone. And they're gone, 2 Peter 3.10 and following, talk about how everything is going to be burned up, right? It's going to be burned up right before this because that's when the Antichrist gathers all of the enemies. Satan gathers all all the enemies of the world, all the unbelievers that come through the millennial kingdom and gathers them together for one final war against God. And it's very brief, it's just one... One verse, and he sends fire down from heaven and incinerates them all. At that time, heaven and earth are destroyed. They flee from his presence. Only thing left is the great white throne. Nothing else is left. So there's nothing in the universe. It's nothing. It's not black. It's not white. It's nothing except the great white throne. And that judgment takes place. And it says... And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to the deeds. And the sea gave up the dead. There's your phrase, the sea gave up the dead. Okay? Which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Okay? So this is the great white throne judgment. Remember we talked to you about seven judgments. First judgment is the judgment that took place at Calvary on the cross, where our sins were judged. The second judgment was the judgment of self, right? 1 Corinthians 11: We examine our lives, we judge our lives before we partake at the Lord's table, so we don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. The third judgment is what we call the bema seat judgment, or the judgment where believers are judged. But I guess judgment's not a really good word because it's really a victorious statement. And then there is the judgment uh, that deals with Israel, book of Ezekiel, the judgment dealing with the nations of the world, Matthew chapter 25, and then there's the judgment of Satan and his angels, and then there's the great white throne judgment. Okay, seven judgments in Scripture, and we've talked about those a couple of weeks ago, so you're able to understand the difference between the seven of them. But this is the great white throne judgment. This is the last judgment. The sea gives up its dead because there is no more sea. Death and Hades give up their dead. Now listen, death is the condition, Hades is the place. Revelation 1, Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. All right? He holds the the keys to how man dies and where he goes when he dies. He's in charge. And so death and Hades give up the dead. Now Hades is a word used to describe the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. It's just the grave, the place of the dead. It's where every unsaved person goes when they die. They go to Hades. They go to Sheol. And therefore, this is their resurrection. This is what the Bible calls the second resurrection. There are two resurrections. There's the first resurrection, and then there's the second resurrection. Two resurrections. You don't want to be a part of the second resurrection Because the second resurrection is the resurrection of all the unsaved dead. The first resurrection has four parts. Okay? Very important. Christ is the first fruit of all those resurrected. All right? In other words, he is the preeminent one of all those ever resurrected from the dead. So he is the first fruit of all those resurrected. That's 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15. Now... From that comes the resurrection of all those who have died in Christ. That's, that's the first resurrection, but the second part of the first resurrection. Then comes the resurrection of Old Testament, uh, of Old Testament saints and of tribulational saints. So there are four parts to the first resurrection. It all deals with those who are believers. Christ, those who die who are believers in the church age, dead in Christ, they shall rise. Then you have the Um, um, Old Testament saints, and you have the tribulational saints. That's all the first resurrection. In fact, if you go back to Revelation 20 earlier, it says in verse number four, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? This is the resurrection of the Tribulational Saints. How do you die in the Tribulation? You lose your head. Okay? Tribulational Saints will die because their heads are cut off. That's why he sees the souls of those who have been beheaded. And so, therefore, we understand that that's how the Antichrist is going to kill Christians in the Tribulation. He's going to sever their head from their bodies. So this is part of that. And then it says this, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection, okay? That is Old Testament saints. And so now you begin to understand the first resurrection. Remember in John chapter 5, our Lord said that he was the key to all resurrections, In fact, he says it this way in John 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There are your two resurrections, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. And so all in the graves are going to hear his voice. Remember at the resurrection of Lazarus, what did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. He didn't say come forth because if he did, everybody who was dead would have come forth. So he had to qualify who was to come forth. Lazarus, you come forth. And, of course, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Because everybody in the graves are going to hear his voice. See, I thought that was pretty funny, but nobody laughed at that. Wasn't that hilarious? You guys didn't even get it. I went right out of your head. That's okay. We're going to get you up in a minute. So anyway, all in the the graves will hear the voice of the Lord. And so all those who have died will rise from the dead. But you want to be a part of the first resurrection, not the second resurrection. In Revelation 20, when the sea gives up his dead, because there is no more sea to hold him, there's no more grave, no more death to keep them. Why? Because it's all gone. Everything is gone. Hades, the place of the dead, is gone. Why? Because heaven and earth have all fled away from his presence. So there is no place for the dead to go. That's why they are given up. And they stand before the great white throne judgment, and there they will be judged. Believers are not at the great white throne judgment. We are at the Bema seat of Christ. We are there to receive our rewards, but this is only for the unbeliever, okay? That's the answer, the long answer to a very short question. Second question, dealing with that, says, how long will the Bema seat judgment last? I don't know, okay? Okay? Remember, the Bema seat judgment happens, 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, Romans 14, verse number 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, deals with the victory, that we, where we receive our crowns, the crown of life, the imperishable crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of joy. Five crowns mentioned in the scriptures that we receive based on our commitment to serving the Lord and how we serve them in this life, Okay. That which is done with selfish motives is burned up. That which is done with pure and holy motives, the Lord knows that. We will receive crowns with that. Revelation 4.10, though, says we will cast those crowns at the feet of our Lord on his throne. So don't think you're going to accumulate all these crowns and you're going to have this big closet in your, in, your, in your mansion filled with crowns. You know, you're going to cast them at the feet of the Lord because, because of him you have them anyway. And so, but the crowns are given to those who have honored the Lord in their lives, and He is going to reward those believers. That's at the Bemis. But how long does it last? I don't know. My guess is for seven years. Not maybe the whole seven years, because we know the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, Revelation 19, in heaven. Okay? And that's where we gather around with the Lord, and there's this great marriage celebration in heaven, but our crowns are given before that. So whether it lasts a year or two or three or four, there is no time in heaven, no clocks, no calendar in heaven. So however long it lasts, it lasts. And God's going to reward those who have honored him. Then it says in Revelation 14, 9 to 10, is this a temporary hell? Got your Bible, Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Now, because I I truly believe that Revelation is literal, not allegorical, not symbolic, I believe the book of Revelation is a true prophecy about the coming end. You need to understand the chronology of Revelation. Revelation 1, you have a vision of the glorified Christ. Revelation 2 and 3, you have the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches that were seven literal churches. Seven churches that are representative of every single church that's ever lived in the history of the church age. And so those seven churches receive seven letters. In Revelation chapter four and five, John is caught up into heaven. Some would say that that's symbolic of the church being translated into heaven because as you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked to you about the 24 elders. And tried to describe for you who the 24 elders are. If you understand the 24 elders to be the church, which I believe the Bible teaches that, then the church is in heaven during the tribulation, not on earth. A number of years ago, uh, Dr. John Walvert, who used to be the president at Dow Seminary, uh, died. But before he died, uh, one of my good friends, David Hawking, was having dinner with him, and he asked David if he would preach his memorial service. And David said, are you sure you want me to do that? He goes, yeah, I want you to come to Dallas and preach my memorial service when I die. He goes, I will. He goes, okay, this is what you're going to preach on. You are going to preach on who are the 24 elders in the book of Revelation. He says, you got to be kidding me. He says, no, you're going to preach on that. I need your word that you're going to preach on who the 24 elders are in the book of Revelation. Why? Why? He said, because Dallas Seminary was moving away from a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial millennial view of Scripture. And he was dying, and he was the, one of the cornerstones of that whole thing. And so he was saying to David, look, when you come, this is what I want you to preach on. So sure enough, got this memorial service for John Walford, thousands of people there, and David gets up to preach and says, I'm preaching on what he told me to preach on. If you got your Bible turn to Revelation chapter four, I'm going to tell you who the 24 elders are. So that's what he preached on. So the understanding of the 24 elders determines what you believe about the church and what happens during the the tribulation. So if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we went into detail as to how do you know the 24 elders is the church, representative of the church in heaven. I won't go into that this evening because we've already covered that. But to understand that, you realize that two and three, the church receives seven letters, four and five. The church is in heaven, John's there, he sees the vision of the glorified Lord in heaven, he sees the vision of the lamb on the throne, and he sees all that. Revelation 6 to 11 is a tribulation. When Revelation 6 opens up, the tribulation begins, and the seal, seals are broken, and they begin to unfold one at a time, okay? When you come to Revelation chapter 12, you have a history of the world in one chapter, So it kind of takes you back. And then Revelation 13 is the rise of Antichrist and the false prophet. When you come to chapter 14, chapter 14 is the opposite of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is about everything that's false, chapter 14 is about everything that's true. Chapter 13 is about the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet, and chapter 14 is all about God's people and their rise during the tribulation that's why it begins with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists why because it says in revelation 14:1 then i looked and behold the lamb was standing on mount zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads now why is that important because satan marks his people with the mark of the beast right christ marks his evangelists with his mark And there's 144,000 of them because in Revelation 7, there are 12,000 from every tribe that are marked out and used as Jewish evangelists. So when you come to Revelation 14, they're on Mount Zion. Now you're at the end of the tribulation. Now you're at the end after Christ has come back because the lamb is on Mount Zion. He's with the 144,000 to show you that they go through the entire tribulation and they will not die, they cannot die because God has marked them. So it's an affirmation of what God has done with his whom he has marked. And then he gives these visions. He gives um, the visions that help us understand what's going on. Then when you come to Revelation chapter 15, picks up the blowing of the seventh trumpet from Revelation chapter 11. Then chapter 16 are the bold judgments. Chapter 19, Jesus Christ returns. Chapter 20 is about the millennial reign of Christ and the judgment. And Revelation 21 and 22 is the new heaven and new earth. That's the big, broad picture of the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, it says this in verse number 9, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of the God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever. And ever they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So, what you have is the end. Revelation 14 is a vision of the end. And those who have received the mark of the beast will be suffering torment forever and ever and ever. So, hell is never a temporary place. Listen, Hades is the place of the dead. Hades is a temporary place. Sheol, a temporary place. Why? Because they flee the presence of God in Revelation 20. And those who are unsaved in Sheol or Hades have been raised from that place because they've heard the voice of the Lord, and those places are gone. But the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation 20... The devil and his angels, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And those who are unbelievers, having been judged, are cast into the lake of fire. And there they will suffer torment forever and ever. The difference between hell and Hades is this. Hades is a suffering of body only in torment. The lake of fire, hell, is a suffering of soul and body forever in torment. There's a difference. Hades is a suffering just of the body. I mean, I should be just of the, of the soul. But, yeah, Hades is a suffering of the soul. Hell is a suffering of body and soul in the lake of fire forever. Okay? So there's a resurrection of all the unsaved dead. They are gathered together with their spirits. They are judged in Revelation 20, and body and soul are tormented day and night in hell forever and ever and ever, a place of lake of fire and brimstone. So there's no such thing as a temporary hell, eternal hell. There is a temporary Hades, a place of the dead, until they are raised from the dead and suffer eternally in the lake of fire. Next question, question number three. Got to hurry talks about Hebrews chapter 10 and wants to know if the vengeance of the Lord and the day of the Lord are the same. Good question. uh, Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, what we have is an understanding of God's judgment upon those who are apostates. Remember there are five warnings in the book of Revelation and the book of Hebrews. Yes, we will get back to the book of Hebrews after Resurrection Sunday. That's the plan. hopefully. We'll see if we can get there. That's the plan. But in Hebrews chapter 10, you have the judgment on apostates. Very important to understand what an apostate is. An apostate is someone who has received superficially the gospel but rejects significantly the gospel. In other words, they receive the gospel superficially. They jump on the Jesus bandwagon. They know about the truth. They believe the truth. They embrace the truth to some degree, but it's all superficial. They receive the gospel superficially, but they will reject the gospel significantly when persecution comes or when hardship comes or when the desires of this world overtake them. You know that from the parable of the sower and the soil, the second and the third seed. And they turn their back on the Lord. So the writer of Hebrews is speaking to Jewish people. That's why it's called Hebrews. They're all Jews. And he's speaking to them from the standpoint of what's going to happen having known what they know about Jesus the Messiah. Some of them having got on the Jesus Messiah bandwagon but didn't really embrace him all the way, okay? He's already warned them in Hebrews 2. He's already warned them in Hebrews 3. He's warned them even further in Hebrews 6. Now when you come to chapter 10, having talked all about the new covenant and the blessing of the new covenant and how Christ is the promise of all new covenant promise. Then the question comes, if you keep on sinning willfully, in other words, you're going to keep on rebelling against Christ, having received superficially everything there is to know about the Christ, you're now going to reject him significantly because you're going to turn your back and walk away from him. You are what the Bible calls an apostate. You hear the truth, you know the truth, but you turn your back on the truth. And that's where he says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know... Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a judgment that happens to those who reject the truth. The judgment of the living God. It's taken from the book of Deuteronomy, from Moses to Israel, the Jewish nation. That's why he quotes it here. It's about Jewish people who turn their back on the Lord having received with full knowledge all that they need to receive from him, and they still reject it. They are in danger of a terrifying expectation of judgment, a fiery end, because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sure enough, it is. So you parallel that with the tribulation and the great white throne judgment and the judgment of God, you begin to understand how terrifying it is to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Next question, which is a little longer than those were, deals with the millennium, okay? I am a pre-millennialist. I am not a post-millennialist, nor am I an all-millennialist. I am a pre-millennialist. Say, what is that? We know the millennium is just a word for a thousand years, okay? And the only way we know there's a thousand year millennium is not from the Old Testament, only from the New Testament, Book of Revelation. Six times, Revelation 20 says, a thousand years. Now, why is that important? It's important because the all-millennialists, those who believe there is no literal reign of Christ upon the earth. If I'm a post-millennialist, I believe that somehow I can usher in the kingdom. That's why you see a lot of these politicians or, or pastors who are on the sides of politicians trying to make sure you get Christians into politics, they're all post-millennialists. They think if you get all the Christians into politics, we can change the laws, things will get better, and post-millennialism says things are going to get progressively better to the end because we're going to usher in the kingdom, and then the king will come. Well, all you can do is watch the news and say, that's not going to happen. It's getting worse and worse and worse, okay? But that's what a post-millennialist believes. He has to look at Scripture allegorically or spiritualize so much of Scripture. If I am an all-millennialist, that means I don't believe in any literal reign of Christ upon the earth. In fact, I believe that the book of Revelation is symbolic or allegorical or was fulfilled according to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the great Olivet Discourse, and it all took place in 70 A.D. The great R.C. Sproul, who was home with the Lord, was an all-millennialist. He's not now. He's a premillennialist now because he went to heaven and he saw Jesus, and now he knows that he was wrong, okay? But he was an all-millennialist. He didn't believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, if you're an all-millennialist, you believe that the church has replaced Israel. In other words, if you don't believe in a literal reign of Christ upon the earth, who literally sits on the throne of David on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, okay, you believe that Israel has been replaced by the church. It's called replacement theology. I reject that. I think that's, that's totally wrong. And, and let me show you why. Turn to Luke chapter 1. We were there for nine years in the book of Luke. But in Luke chapter 1, you have to understand something. If if I'm an all-millennialist or a post-millennialist, I have to really spiritualize a lot of Scripture. I can't take it literally. But we are literalists. We take the Scripture literally. For instance, it says six times in Revelation 20, a thousand years, right? A thousand years. Do you know that every number in the book of Revelation is a literal number? When it says 1,260 days, it's 1,260 days. It's a literal number, it's not symbolic. When it says 42 months, it means 42 months. When it says three and a half years, it's three and a half years. When it says 144,000, it's 144,000. 12,000, literal number, from each tribe, totaling 144,000, it's a literal number. So... Why all of a sudden would it be a mystical, symbolic, allegorical thousand years all of a sudden? It's not. The thousand years are as literal as the 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, 144,000, 12,000 each tribe, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. How many are there? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There's not Eight. Not 10, they're not symbolic. They're all real. So now a 1,000 years is real. And if it keeps being repeated over and over and over in the same chapter, there is a message that the Lord wants to get across to his people. There's going to be a kingdom. There's going to be a king on the throne. There's going to be a covenant fulfillment promise to Abraham, to David, because God said so there is those three unconditional promises that God made to Abraham and David. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional promise between God and Abraham about the land. The Davidic covenant is an unconditional promise given to God, to David, all about the Lord of that land. And the new covenant promise is an unconditional promise from God to Israel, that Israel will experience and understand the love of the Lord of that land and embrace Christ as their Messiah. Those are unconditional covenants that God gave to Israel that will literally be fulfilled. It's just so elementary. I think that sometimes people are educated beyond their intelligence They want to get all this education, read all these books, and come up with new books, and come up with new ideas just to confuse everybody in the pew. The Bible is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's not that difficult to understand. But people just get so discombobulated when it comes to understanding prophecy, and it gripes my gizzard that people do that. But that's what happens. So in Luke chapter 1, this is what it says. Look. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb. This is the angel talking to Mary. Let me ask you a question. If you believe that Mary literally conceived a child in a womb, raise your hand. Everybody believe that? Did that happen? Good. You will bear a son. Did she have a son or a girl? A girl or a boy? A boy. Huh. Okay. Then it says, and, and you shall name him Jesus. Did she have a boy in her womb that when he was born was named Jesus? If you believe that, raise your right hand. Not your left hand, your right hand. Repeat after me. Okay. She did conceive. She had a son. His name was Jesus. Is that all literal or figurative? It's literal. It all happened. Right? Read on. And he will be great and could be called the son of the most high. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Yes and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Well, see, that's not literal. That's symbolic. That's allegorical. He's not going to really give him the throne of his father David, is he? Why would you take one verse and say this is literal and then take the next phrases of the next verse and say, well, it's not really literal. It's just kind of symbolic. It's kinda, it, it's, We're going to spiritualize this part about the throne and Christ on the throne of David. But that's what they do. And then it says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, either that's true or it's not. If verse 31 happened exactly as the angel said it was going to happen, why wouldn't verse 32 happen exactly as the angel said it was going to happen? Because you know that when he came to earth, what happened? He came presenting the kingdom. He's the king. But the kingdom wasn't established because he came to his own, and his own received him not. So the kingdom was postponed until a later time. The church was born. There'll be a church age. There'll come a time of Jacob's trouble. Then the king will come and sit on the throne of his father, David. See how simple that is? It's not that difficult to understand. But the majority of people are all millennialists. There is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. There is no literal Jesus sitting on the throne of David on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's all about the kingdom in your heart. And because the kingdom is established in your heart that God's kingdom is not of this world, and therefore it's in your heart, he rules on the throne of your heart. That's not what it said in Luke chapter 1, that he will reign over the house of Jacob in their heart, and his kingdom will have no end in your heart. That's not what it says. But that's the spiritual gymnastics people are willing to take to come up with a view that's, in my mind, an unbiblical view. It doesn't support the truth of the scriptures. The Bible says in Isaiah 11, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the nursing child shall play in the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. If I'm a post-millennialist or an all-millennialist, all that is spiritualized, and that's only talking about a new world It has nothing to do with the literal earth. But Isaiah's prophecy, was all about what's going to happen when Messiah comes. And everything is going to be better. I was talking to Esteban today, and one of his professors said to him, look, if you're an all-millennialist, every one of us should be charismatic Pentecostal people. Because all the gifts are in operation during the millennial kingdom. We should be healing everybody. But let me tell you something about COVID. It exposed the frauds. Nobody's being healed of COVID because of some, something that happened at Bethel, Bethel Church and their school of ministry to heal people, right? It's closed down. But you think if the world needs you, why do you close down? Unless you're a fraud, which they are. I know this is on tape, but truth is the truth. No matter how you cut it, truth is still the truth. <clears throat> so you need to understand those things. But if I'm an all millennialist, there is no literal reign. I mean, everything in Matthew 24, the great Olivet discourse, all happened in 70 AD when the governor of Rome, when, when, when the Roman general Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem under his father's reign, Vespasian. Okay? Why is that important? Because if I am an all-millennialist, I take the view that the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D., but it wasn't. Because Rome sent John to the Isle of Patmos, and Vespasian did not send him there. Domitian sent him there. He reigned from 81 to 96 A.D. So I know that from church history. I understand that. So the book of Revelation couldn't be written before 70 A.D., had to be written sometime after that. So in Revelation 11, when John sees a temple uh, in Revelation 11, he knows that there is no temple in Jerusalem because it was destroyed in 70 A.D. He knows that. But he sees a temple, he's got to measure the temple because in the tribulation there's going to be a new temple. It's called the third temple. And that third temple will be built by the Jews for not the Messiah, but the anti-Messiah. And that one will be destroyed because of the abomination of desolation. And the fourth temple, Zechariah chapter 6, will be built by the Messiah himself. He will rule and reign, literally, on the throne of his father David from Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And the law, as Isaiah 2 says, will go forth from Zion All that is literal, not figurative or symbolic. But if I'm an all millennialist, I have got to do spiritual gymnastics around texts. For example, Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, this is how I'm going to translate these verses Matthew 16. You know I'm not going to get through all my questions, don't you? Of course you do. I can't even get through my points on Sunday morning, let alone my questions on Wednesday nights. But I think this is important because most of your friends are going to be all millennial. There is no literal reign of Christ upon the earth. It's all spiritual. It's all in your heart. He's on the throne of your heart. Oh, by the way, if I'm an all millennial, I believe that Satan is bound. I talked to a friend of mine who's all millennialist over Christmas. He said, I said, so... Is Satan bound? He goes. Oh yeah, Satan's bound. So you gotta be kidding me. I thought he was a prince in the power of the air. I thought he went about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, yeah, but he's but but but, but he is, he's curbed by by the power of God. Satan's always been curbed by the power of God. He could not do anything without asking permission from God, right? Nothing. But he's a prince. And the, of the uh, uh, prince of the power of the air, he 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 rules this world, the whole world. First John five lies in the lap of the evil one, because God has allowed him to do that. But for a thousand years, according to Revelation twenty, Satan will be bound. And the question comes: Why would Jesus bind Satan for a thousand years? What's the significance of that? Why not just destroy him? Yes, there's going to be a battle at the end. Yes, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Yes, there's going to be a great way throne judgment. Yes, but why would he bind him for a 1,000 years? Why? That's always a good question, the why question. Well, why would the Lord do that? Because, see, during the millennium, everybody goes into the millennial kingdom are saved people. All the unsaved are judged at the sheep, goat, judgment, Matthew 25. Sheep on the right, goats on the left, goats into eternal destruction, the sheep into everlasting life, they go into the kingdom. And so all the sheep, which made of Jews and Gentiles, saved Jews and Gentiles, go into the kingdom. So when the kingdom begins, it begins with all believers. And you and me who have glorified bodies, okay? But all those believers are going to have children over a 1,000 years. And there's going to be a lot of children born in a thousand years. And all those children will be born with a sin nature. Some of them will believe, others will not. But because there's a theocracy where Christ rules with a rod of iron, all right, it squelches all rebellion until the end of the thousand years. But what the Lord does is allow people to understand that man sins not because Satan made him do it or he's tempted by Satan, but because of his own depraved nature, he is going to fall into sin and rebel against the true living God, even though the living God is on the throne of David in Jerusalem. They will still sin. To prove that no matter how great the environment, how great the king who rules the environment, if you're going to sin, you're going to sin and you're going to rebel against God. And so the Lord binds Satan. Christ talks about the cost of discipleship. He says in verse 27 of Matthew 16, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So if I'm I'm an omnibus, I said this, okay, so now everybody standing here, the disciples, are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, which is a fulfillment in their mind of Matthew 24. And Christ not coming literally to earth in 70 A.D., but coming figuratively to earth to rule and reign in the hearts of man. But the problem is the text says there are some of those who are standing here, not all of you, just some of you. Who are the some? Peter, James, and John. Because the very next verse says, Six days later, Jesus took him, Peter, James, and John, and his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. The high mountain is in the northern part of Israel. It's called Mount Hermon. There he took them up. There he was transfigured before them, and they received the glory of the kingdom, the Son of Man in all of His glory. So, in Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen and eighteen, what does Peter say? We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty when on the Mount of Transfiguration. He uses that example. He uses that time as the keynote proof text that we have a more sure prophetic word than what I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Even though I saw the Son of Man in all of his majesty, even though I saw him in all of his glory, there's something more sure than what I saw. It's the actual truth of the prophetic word of God that's been given to us. And therefore he proves the authority and the security of the truth of God's word and validates that truth. That's all that means. But the all-millennialists will take that verse and say, Well, see, the Son of Man's gonna come, and those who are standing there, okay, were the disciples. And so then they jump to Matthew 24, and in Matthew chapter 24, here's their key verse. For all omnidolists, it says in verse number 34 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? This generation will not pass away until everything in Matthew 24 takes place. And they're going to say, okay, that generation is the generation of those people who heard what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives. It all took place in 70 A.D. Therefore, Matthew 24 has been fulfilled. Therefore, Revelation is all allegorical and symbolic and spiritualized. Therefore, there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. There is no literal millennial kingdom. The kingdom is in the heart of man. Genos, or genea, for the word generation, is used 63 times in the New Testament. It's the word that means nation. This nation shall not pass away. What's the nation? The Jewish nation. It says, this nation will not pass away until all these things take place. That is an assurance of what God has promised Israel. Listen carefully. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Wow. Why, why did you say that? Because it takes them all the way back to the book of Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, where God promised Israel in the new covenant with these words, Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, they shall be my people, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for the Lord will for they will all know me, and the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars. Stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. That's why the Lord uses the phrase, Heaven and earth will not pass away, or well, my words will not pass away. Because of of heaven and earth. The promise of the new covenant was all around the order of the universe and the stars and the sun and the moon. He says, if these things ever cease to exist, my covenant with Israel is over. But they don't. Why? Because he upholds all things by the word of his power. They're always going to exist until the very end when he destroys them all and then makes a new heaven and a new earth. That's why he uses the phrase in in Matthew chapter 24 right after he talks specifically about what it means to understand this generation, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why? It would take every Jew right back to Jeremiah 31, help them understand that this nation is going to exist. Listen, God's got a promise for his nation. It's based on his foreknowledge, It's based on his faithfulness. It's based on his forgiveness. God made a promise to Israel. And it's based primarily on his foreknowledge. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Paul says these words. Verse number one. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the promise to Israel is all based on the foreknowledge of God. God had a plan. God had a plan centered around Israel. They are his chosen people. All throughout the Old Testament, they were the chosen representative of God. They were to be the spokesperson for God to the nations of the world. That's what they are designed to do. They kept rebelling against God. They kept rejecting God. They went off into captivity. The Messiah finally came. They rejected their Messiah. God has now set them aside for a time being to birth the church, to grow the church. Some Jews who are converted now are part of the church, right? The church age. But when the church is translated back up into glory, what does God do? It takes two witnesses. One like Moses, one like Elijah, one like Enoch. We don't know exactly who they are. Revelation 11. And who gets saved? 144,000 who? Jews. Jews. Why? Because now everything about the time of Jacob's trouble is about Israel. The tribulation is for Israel. It's for Israel. It's all about Israel. So the 144,000 Jewish evangelists now preach the gospel. Gentiles now are saved. Other Jews are saved. To the very end when God... Saves a third of the nation. The other two thirds will perish, but a third will survive and they will go into the kingdom and they will experience new covenant promise. Why? Because God, in his foreknowledge, had a plan. And then we also know that not only just based on that foreknowledge is the faithfulness of God from Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, listen to what Jesus says Psalm 89. The Davidic covenant. Verse 33, "...but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever." And his throne as a sun before me; it shall be established forever, like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. God says, "Because I am faithful to my word, I am true to my word. I do not lie. I made a promise to David; it's going to happen. The Messiah will come. The Messiah will ru- ru- rule and reign from the throne of David on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Because I have foreknown." a people that I've chosen for myself. And lastly, it all deals with forgiveness. From the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, verse number 25, the Lord says these words, "'I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions "'for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins.'" Chapter 44, verse number 22. Remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So, because of God's foreknowledge, God's faithfulness, and God's forgiveness... There is a plan for Israel that will be fulfilled. Well, they will finally inherit the land with the biblical boundaries mentioned 38 different times in the Old Testament, way beyond the boundaries. They have one-tenth of what they're supposed to have today. And they will have all that, and their Messiah will reign from Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And the law will go forth from his throne because he is a forgiving, faithful God. New covenant promise will happen for Israel. Abrahamic promise will happen for Israel. Davidic promise will happen for Israel. It's not somehow all set aside and now you and I, the church, get all those blessings because we were never promised the land. We just weren't. It's not my land. It's God's land he gave to Israel. I'm not upset with that. You you shouldn't be upset with that either. It's not ours. God gave to them. And God is Israel's Messiah, just like he's your Messiah and my Messiah. But he is the promised king that will rule on the throne of David. So important to understand that. That's why the millennial kingdom is so important to understand when it comes to understanding prophecy and what's going to happen in the future. So I am a pre-millennialist. I'm a pre-tribulationalist. I believe that the Lord's going to come back and take his church before that. So this is the problem I've got. I've got all these questions I need to finish here. Okay? So I'm going to finish them next Wednesday night.